Anthropological Airwaves is the official podcast of the journal American Anthropologist, whose main offices are located on the traditional and ancestral territories of the Anacostan and Piscataway peoples. The Anacostia and Potomac Rivers have long been places of trade and gathering for indigenous peoples, and Washington, D.C. is now home to diverse indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island. American Anthropologist has published articles throughout its history that have taken knowledge from indigenous peoples for a scholarly audience and has not required its authors or editors to be good relations to indigenous peoples and communities. Acknowledging territory is only one step in repairing relationships between anthropologists and indigenous peoples. The editorial collective of the journal is committed to deep listening and engagement with indigenous scholars, peoples, and communities to explore better ways to be a better relation. This episode of Anthropological Airwaves was recorded and produced from the traditional territories of the Catawba, Waxhaw, Chera, and Sugary peoples, and specifically in Charlotte, North Carolina, a city located on the traditional crossroads of two indigenous trading paths, the Okanichee Path and the Lower Cherokee Traders Path, which facilitated the extensive trade network of Cherokee, Catawba, Saponi, and Congaree peoples prior to colonization. While many descendants of the Chera, Waxhaw, and Sugary communities eventually joined the Catawba peoples, today the Catawba Nation continues to thrive as a federally recognized tribe located less than one hour south of where I am recording. Hi everyone, Anar here. Welcome back to Anthropological Airwaves, the official podcast of the journal American Anthropologist. This is episode two, season three-ish. My name is Anar Parikh. I'm a PhD candidate in anthropology at Brown University and the associate editor of the podcast at American Anthropologist. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm also the executive producer of Anthropological Airwaves and will often be the all-in-one producer, host, engineer of this show. In other words, you'll be hearing a lot from me. But don't worry, you'll also be hearing from plenty of other anthropologists and scholars whose work we look forward to featuring in a variety of formats, including interviews, conversations, experiments in sonic ethnography, and ethnographic journalism. Before we get on with the show, I have a few quick announcements. I want to remind y'all that Anthropological Airwaves is launching a new segment called Anthro Help Desk, where we will be answering your questions, comments, and concerns on all things anthropology. Perhaps a theoretical concept is tripping you up. You're looking for tips and tricks to use in your anthropology classroom, or you're trying to resolve a long-standing debate with one of your colleagues. Well, cue the dial tone. Anthro Airwaves is here to help. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, please send us a short recording to amanthpodcast at gmail.com with Anthro Help Desk in the subject line. All of this information, as well as details about how to pitch and submit episodes to the podcast, is also available on the Anthropological Airwaves section of the American Anthropologist website. All right, let's get on with the show. The theme of this mini-season is crossover, and during the next few months, Anthro Airwaves will be featuring anthropology podcasts and the people who make them. During each monthly episode, I'll chat with the host or hosts of a different anthropology podcast about their show, why they make it, and how it connects to their broader work. After a short interview, Anthro Airwaves will feature an episode of the show and include information on where you can learn more about our guests and their work. In the first episode of the series, I talked to NYU PhD student Anuli Akanebu about her podcast, Black in Real Life. 
Today's episode is the second in this mini-series, and my guests are Alyssa A.L. James and Brendan Tynes, the makers of Zora's Daughters, a society and culture podcast that uses black feminist anthropology to think about race, politics, and popular culture. I'll chat with Brendan and Alyssa about the Zora's Daughters project, and at the end of the interview, we'll play the episode The Climate is Anti-Blackness from Semester 2 of Zora's Daughters, which originally aired on their show on March 3, 2021. If you love what you hear, and I'm sure you will, you can find the first two semesters of Zora's Daughters pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts or visit the website www.zorasdaughters.com to learn more. We'll link to the website in the show notes. Let me tell you a little bit about our guests. Alyssa is a third-year PhD student in the Department of Anthropology at Columbia University and a 2020 recipient of the Canadian Social Science and Humanities Research Council Doctoral Fellowship. Her research examines the consequences of recasting colonial history for Caribbean subjectivities and futures. She interrogates the discourses and practices that transform commodities into heritage and history into commodities as it unfolds through Martinique's nascent coffee revival project. In her free time, you'll find Alyssa dancing, traveling, and writing about it. Hi, Anar. Nice to finally meet you, you know, beyond Twitter. I'm Alyssa, mm -hmm. and I use she, her, hers pronouns. And Brendan is a fourth-year PhD candidate in the Department of Anthropology at Columbia University. She's a 2018 Ford Foundation pre-doctoral fellow whose research centers the affective experience of Black women and girls in the movement for Black lives. Her research stands at the intersection of affect theory, anthropology, and Black studies, with a particular emphasis on Black feminist anthropological theory and praxis. You can find her latest essay, How Do We Listen to the Living, on Anthropology News, which we'll also link to in the show notes. In her free time, Brendan enjoys writing, poetry, and dancing. Hi, it's, I'm actually really honored to be here, Narn. It's so wonderful to see you in person. You know, I think we, as Alyssa was saying, we'd be on the internet um, chatting it up. Um, <laughs> and hello to all of you who are listening. My name is Brendan, and I use she, her, her pronouns. The feeling is totally mutual, so I'm so honored that you both agreed to have this conversation with me. So thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Zora's Daughters and, you know, anything else we decide we want to talk about. I have to admit that I was a bit late to the game, but I spent the past couple of months catching up on the first two semesters of the show, and I can't tell you how much I've learned from you both and appreciate the way that y'all are thinking and learning from each other and from the texts that you engage with on the show. Thank you. Yeah, we're, we're glad to hear it. Well, I'll say for, I'll speak for myself. I'm really glad to hear it. I think that's what we were both hoping for is that people listen and, and learn and are able to think, think from and, and with us. So this season of Anthro Airwaves is about capturing the range of anthropology podcasts that people are making and to talk about process, like the inspiration behind a project, what making a podcast entails, that kind of stuff. So to start off, I'd love to hear from y'all about where the idea for Zora's Daughters came from. <laughs> yes, it started with the name, actually. I really should be less embarrassed about telling the story, but I'm not because <laughs> it's so basic. But last summer, I wanted to change my Twitter handle and I was inspired by the author, uh, Robert Jones Jr. He goes by Son of Baldwin. 
And I thought, hmm, how about Daughter of Zora, right? I'm a Black woman, I'm a writer, I'm a graduate student at, at Columbian Anthropology, just like Zora Neale Hurston was. I'm walking down these halls, sitting in these classrooms. And so in a way I was like, oh, I'm kind of you know part of her legacy. It was very anthropological. And, and that was what I was looking for in the Twitter handle. And then at the same time, we were facing the COVID-19 pandemic. The, I mean, we still are, but at the time it was very fresh. <laughs> the racial uprisings and, and all of that, you know, and that was bringing things up in our department and the academy broadly. So I don't know if you remember, but that's around the time that Black in the Ivory was happening on Twitter. And so Brent and I were having conversations, we were tweeting and some of those tweets were getting traction. Brendan had a thread that, that went viral around that time as well. <laughs> and then it just kind of clicked. It was like, why not start a podcast that brings these conversations that she and I were having to a wider public, right? Like people always compliment us on our chemistry and rapport. Brent and Brennan always says, you know, she makes sure to point out like we are actually friends, right? We are having these conversations. We've been to the club. You know, we, we, <laughs> we really about, have. We have. <laughs> when we, we go to clubs. <laughs> the the club. We went to we went to this spot called Angel. Didn't we go to like two places that night? Yeah, we were we were party hopping that night. I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't really sure what to expect. Um because every time I go out to, in Harlem, it's always in a fascinating time. But it was a really, <laughs> it was fun. Um, we definitely, I learned that Alyssa could get down, you know. Exactly. So. <laughs> and I'm a pretty, I would say I'm pretty reserved at school, right? You can say I, in classes and stuff, sure. I'm pretty reserved. So I'm sure she was like, I don't know. This is really the person I want yeah, like, to go to the club. Yeah, going right? on in Canada, you know, like. But yeah, so we've done that. Um, you know, we, we would, of course, we, we've taken classes together. So we would, of course, talk about things we are reading. But, you know, we talk about memes and we talk about music and bad black movies and, and stuff like that. And so, you know, I just pitched her the idea of bringing these conversations to, to a podcast for people to, to hear. And I kind of just pitched it in a WhatsApp text. And she was like, I'd be down. All right. <laughs> So for people who haven't listened to Zora's Daughters yet, your episodes are organized into three segments. What's the word where you introduce a vocabulary word or concept at the center for your conversation for the week? Then what we're reading, a related text that y'all read together and talk about. And finally, what in the world where you talk about a topic in popular culture and how it's connected to the academic concepts or theories you're talking about. Can you talk about how you kind of organize the show into those three sections? Yeah, um, I would say that that is primarily Alyssa's genius. She is the one who came up with like the titles of each section and kind of what we would do in them. And I think what I bring to it, um, and we both have backgrounds in like teaching and thinking through education, right? So we're like, well, what's the most efficient way for people to understand the conversations that we're trying to have? Like we can't just run into having an anthropological analysis of what in the world without people understanding what in particular we might be using it with our critical lens with, right? And so I think that that is really the thought process behind it is like, how can we most efficiently and effectively 
get folks who might not have any understanding of like what the hell is going on, right? To understand like what we're saying um, and why we are using the kind of critique that we're using. And I think it's been really useful for me uh, and I would say maybe for both of us because there are sometimes we read things and we're like, oh, let's put this on this week so we can read it so we can understand it better. Um, Cause you always understand things better when you have to teach them. And so yeah. we'll just like bounce off of each other with what word we think we want to do. And then we'll say, okay, what text um, do we think we want to align with this word? And then we usually stem from like the current events that happen. But this season or semester, we actually serendipitously um, wanted to talk about Afro-pessimism. And we were just like, we're just going to stick it on a random week. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. And it just happened to coincide with the Meghan Markle, is she mm. Black debate. Um, and so it was mm. like, we didn't manifest Meghan Markle being kicked out of the palace, but we definitely. <laughs> she left. She left by choice. You know, apparently. Choice, you know, whatever <laughs> that means. Um, but we definitely were in line with the universe and the stars. And we tend to take our lead from what's happening around us and what we think we'll be able to have critical conversations about. Um, and then we think about, okay, what text can we use to really analyze what's happening? And then either from that text or something that's kind of similar, it will be our word that we use for the day. Yeah. And I mean, the coincidence or the kismet that you described really, I think, speaks to the ways in which um, these anthropological concepts and the Black feminist lens that you use are the ways that like people are experiencing the world on a daily basis. I think um, yeah. for us, it really, it really shows how theory must be grounded, right? So like what one of the values and virtues of Black feminist theory, and a lot of actually, I would say women of color feminist theory is that it's not some, you know, stodgy white man <laughs> who's sitting in, you know, doing drugs, sitting in his room, thinking about what the world could possibly be like. It's people who are living and thinking about, okay, how can we actually take our experiences and abstract them um, and not universalize them, which I think is a very, is also the difference that you're talking about, Anar, right? It's not about how do we make our experiences, everyone's experiences. It's like, how do we make our experiences known to everyone, which I think is a, a really important distinction for Black feminist work. And it doesn't necessarily mean that because it's grounded in experience that it's not difficult or challenging to work through, right? Like it's grounded, but also that these are experiences and concepts that are challenging and require thoughtfulness and care in how you think through them and that they may change over time or kind of shift or manifest in ways that are unexpected. I think what you're getting at is kind of you see that exactly in our Afro-pessimism episode because, you know, Brendan and our guest, Chloe, who, you know, we said is fellow, fellow um, Zora's daughter. <laughs> She's also in our department. Um, you know, they they don't agree on on this question of of Meghan Markle's blackness. And, you know, they're coming they're coming at that question from different perspectives, even though, you know, we have the same what we could call if we wanted to an object of study you know they both have the same object of study but they're coming at it from different perspectives so it does require as you were saying a, a particular kind of thoughtfulness to really answer a question that seems simple but when you do think through it deeply and think through it through different theories it does actually it does complicate it in, in, in a lot of ways that makes it an, an interesting question to discuss 
abstractly. <laughs> right. Or she, you know, no Meghan Markle is a person. <laughs> She's not an object. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So um, I, I mean, to discuss in the abstract, yeah. Yeah, and Alyssa, in the Climate is Anti-Blackness episode, which folks will get a chance to hear, um, to listen to after this interview, you mentioned an Angela Davis book where she talks about preparing for her qualifying exams and being so connected to the text that she was reading, that she was dreaming about them and, and wishing that you could feel that connected to your books in a similar way. And I mean, just a couple of minutes ago, as you're we saying that often in graduate school, there's actually not that kind of opportunity to like really connect with the work that you're reading, partly because our syllabi as much um, like grit and amazing work there is by black feminists, by women of color feminists. Those are not the texts that are showing up most of our syllabi, but that's just to say that this desire really resonates with me. And what strikes me is that what y'all are doing, especially in the way that you engage with text in what we're reading feels like an antidote to the pressure to read a lot, but only to read it cursorily or to like try to get the core of it out of it, but not to really think through the various parts of it and, and move through it in the way that authors have like often so beautifully like put together a full story in, in a text. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I completely hear that. I agree. I will say that I didn't read that Angela Davis book. <laughs> it was a <laughs> quote that someone else tweeted and then Brendan sent it to me on Twitter and I was like, oh, why are you, <laughs> I'm feeling really bad about not, about not being able to have the same kind of engagement. But I think, I think you're right, it is an antidote, right? Like we were, when we were thinking about the episode structure, for me, I was like, I want this to be a cross between one of the best seminar classes you never had, okay, ever had. <laughs> And a podcast like Code Switch, you know, where they're very in-depth, well-researched, and, you know, they speak on one, one particular topic. And so then when I was thinking about the best classes, the best courses I had, they were never the ones where you had to read five articles and half a book every week, right? And I understand the purpose of that kind of pedagogy. But, you know, the classes that I really loved were the ones where we'd only read one, maybe two texts every week and we'd read it closely and we'd be able to discuss particular passages and things like that. And that's when I really learned the most. And I, I actually think that's how kind of like scholars and intellectuals were kind of trained like in the generations before ours, maybe two generations before. Um, but now it's just like, there's so much to read, you know? And I think a lot of professors feel like they're doing us a disservice by not assigning a little bit of everything instead. And so I think, I think it's nice to really dig deep into one book or one text and see what you can get from that because they all are a part of the conversation and reading a little bit of it doesn't help you enter into it. It's actually reading one closely that does. Just to add to that, I think personally, I'm like a very close reader no matter really what you send me, if it's like a text message or a picture or something, like I'm always like thinking about things and um, looking at them deeply and trying to think about, okay, what is everyone talking about, about this thing and what is not being said? And so I think that's also one of the strengths that we do and what we bring is that, yeah, okay, we can tell you what everyone else is saying. Like, we'll give you the cute summary. 
Um, but we'll also think about and talk about, right, what's not being said or what's being assumed here um, and try to bring that to the forefront as well. And that was something that y'all did really amazingly just last week or a couple of weeks ago with an incident that happened on social media where you picked apart this, like, uh, I guess they called it an educational packet. And the way that you broke it down of like, this is what this piece of information says. And this is like, what is underlying the thing that's on the screen that you may not know about, or that is like subtle or not that subtle. Yes, our episode is coming out um, this Wednesday, where we're going to talk a little bit more about it and go even more in depth, because there are always layers upon layers upon layers. And I think that was what that was one of the things that we were trying to show is that actually a lot of the violence that she was enacting in that video was insidious and implicit. And, you know, you needed to read closely in order to in order to see it. Yeah, for me, it's just really fascinating to see. And and I think we're going to talk about it, too, just the ways that social media has changed what activism can be and what it can look like. And so for her in particular, right, at her activism or her standing in her right was clapping back, quote unquote, at two Black women. By the time she didn't know um, were two Black women. And so it's like you're saying, and I was actually like, I was laughing um, for those of you, because of course you can't see us. So I was laughing um, about it because there was so much more education that we brought to the packet itself than like the explanational, the informational video, right? That was supposed to accompany a packet that was supposed to be something legible for people as young as 13. And we, and I think now we're gonna be having a lot more conversations about what, um, what solidarity, quote unquote, a coalition can look like. And I think the beauty of like of us responding and the beauty of everything that happened in the midst of all of the drama is that more people are having these conversations now. Um, and that's like a dream, right? It's a podcast dream that something you say in the world allows people to like have more conversations about it. <laughs> and I mean, I will say that because of my own work on South Asian American like political belonging, that a lot of the terms and like ideas that you were breaking down in in that video are things that come up in the literature and scholarship that I read. And I think for me, it was really helpful for thinking through a lot of the concepts that are taken for granted in that scholarship. And, and like, sometimes you have a sense that a particular framing is incomplete, or even is harmful, right? But I don't always have the vocabulary that I would like to have to articulate that. So I really appreciated the way that you both broke down some of those concepts and, and framings to like really think further about what that looks like in my own writing about representation and political belonging. As much as I also love, love mess. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Not the mess. <laughs> Wait, Anar, are you also an air sign? Because then that would explain. Um, I am a Pisces, sun and Pisces rising and a Leo moon. Oh my gosh. We don't have to talk about this off the cast. I'm fascinated. <laughs> okay. But Pisces, that also explains why you would be in the mess. I'm a Pisces moon. So the mess is like, it calls a lot. to me, you know? <laughs> and the Leo part is like, oh, I love to like hear about it and then 
retell it and talk about it. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I have just one more question before we let people listen to um, the climate is anti-blackness. And that is that we got a brief introduction to y'all's individual research in the bios at the top of the show. But I'd also love to hear you both talk a little bit more about your own work. And that can be your research or to talk about how Doris Daughters fits into your respective commitments. And um, you've talked about like pedagogically, but also politically as Black feminist scholars. Yes, what is my research? Um, <laughs> being in the third year, currently writing my perspectives, my research is in flux, but I will say, <laughs> you know, the, the podcast, Doris Daughters, I think it fits in with, you know, a lot of my political commitments. And, you know, I think for one, because Brendan and I are friends, and we come from these very different backgrounds and positions, you know, we kind of illustrate the diversity of Blackness. We model the principles of care and community in, in our intellectual engagement with each other. For me personally, continual learning is really important. And so I learn so much from and, and with Brendan. And I've said this before, she's like, she's, she's about to get all emotional. <laughs> but I've, I've said before, you know, I'm, I'm still really growing in, in my politics. And so, you know, I might say to her, okay, I'm, I'm not there yet on X topic. I'm, I'm, I'm still working on that part. And she'll kind of explain and we'll go back and forth. And, you know, it's never disrespectful. It's always a conversation. It's always open. And even if I don't agree or I'm, I haven't quite gotten to her level as yet, you know, we're, we're still talking about it. And then I think for me politically, the accessibility of academic work, or I think what people might hesitatingly call public anthropology is another big one for me. So first of all, I'm first generation, everything in higher education. And so when people start talking about the dialectical hermeneutics of the Kantian deontological ethics, I'm like, <laughs> I have no idea what you're doing there at all. <laughs> and I think, you know, I think that work definitely has its kind of place because, you know, it's opening up spaces for thinking that which hasn't been thought before. But there's so much awful shit happening in our actual factual world that the privilege I have to research and write about it, I think should be used for bettering it. And, you know, someone tweeted the other day that, you know, that we academics, you know, we're not radicals, we're not revolutionaries because our ability to spend time thinking and writing is tied up in these capitalist institutions. And for me, I'm just like, I'll be damned if the people who are doing the work on the ground, doing these grassroots projects can't use the work that I'm doing and the work that we do in academia to make change. And so I think Brendan said it really well somewhere else. You know, She said our work should be accessible to marginalized communities. And if it's not, what are you doing? What are you doing here? But Brendan, you can say more on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I can pick up off of what you were saying. <laughs> I think for me, my research, so you said affective experiences of Black women and girls living in Baltimore and what that really means. That's like my like gloss over that I give for, um, for 
for people at conferences because most people when they hear affective they're like oh I don't know what that is but I'm not gonna ask you any questions about it because I don't want you to know that I don't know what it is um but really what I do is I I try to think about how do black women and girls use emotions like fear and grief right that are written as these kind of immobilizing emotions right these um these things that once you experience violence and you feel fear or you have grief because you've lost someone, you're supposed to kind of stay in a particular place and not do anything. Um, and that's kind of like this white victimhood narrative that comes out. So these women and girls are anti-sexual violence activists. And so victim is like a big word in my field site um, and thinking about what does it actually mean to be a victim when violence is a condition of your life? right? Not just an aberration, but an actual condition. And so what does it mean to feel fear constantly, but still have to keep going? What, did it mean, what does it mean to lose someone or to lose multiple people every day, right? In Baltimore, something like every 24 hours, someone is shot and killed, right? And so it's like every day the community is losing someone. Um, and what does it mean to continue to fight politically, emotionally, and communally? And also recognize that like black women and girls are not remembered in the same way that other victims of violence are. So that's like another piece of my work. And so I think for me, how does Zora's Daughters fit into that? It allows for me to think about other things outside of my field work, outside, <laughs> outside of the like depressing archival stuff that I read or outside of like the work that I immerse myself in, it allows for me to have conversations with Alyssa. Like now, you know, every week we're stuck talking to each other. Um, it allows for me to, <laughs> to spend to spend time thinking about stuff that's like tangentially related to my work, but not exactly on it. And I know in all your dissertation writing phase, so it's like the time that you spend away from your dissertation also feels like a blessing and a part of, part of your work, I'm sure. And as far as my commitments politically, Zora's Daughters, uh, I think the echo of what Alyssa is saying is something that I believe in strongly is something that educates um, people who are marginalized, who might not ever have access to academic language or academic spaces, but they still feel like they want to be a part of the conversation. And I tell this story often when we speak, but for me, what was one of the most like touching things about this podcast is that one of our regular supporters is actually my aunt and my aunt did not go to college. She graduated from high school, got a job immediately after um, and lived her life. And the fact that she listens to Zora's Daughters and she tells me that she learned so much um, really means a lot to me. And you know, for a Capricorn to tell you that they're learning something, that's, you know, that takes a lot. And so <laughs> um, if she listens to this, she's gonna the Capricorn shade, the Capricorn <laughs> shade. She's going to definitely send me a message like, why'd you put me out there like that? Um, but yeah, like that is the thing. Like that is the vision. That is the goal. Like I don't, like it's cool that, you know, I'm going to say Dr. Deborah Thomas listens to us. Like, I think it's cool, but you know, she's not our only audience, right? Like I, I think about the work that I do for my dissertation as something that's going to change the lives of Black women and girls. And so I would like, for Zora's daughters to do the same. Um, and I think that especially this last bit of mess that we were talking about has really amplified for us our impact, like people DMing us, sending us messages saying, you know, thank you for being brave enough to say something because this is actually, this, this person has been abusive to my community for years. 
and for Alyssa and I to like to put it out there in the world and say actually we do know what we're talking about and we do know how to, to go about these things and have these conversations it opened the door for other people um to voice what was happening in their own communities as well um but yeah I think that's my my short little speech <laughs> done yeah and Alyssa, in, in what you're talking about in terms of like, what does it mean to be an academic and whether that is a revolutionary stance or position to occupy? And I think it's, it's definitely complicated given the institutions that like support us or that we have to also kind of like pander to in certain spaces, but that you've both like really created a space where you can do that on your own terms and on, on terms for the people that you're in community with. And that's really amazing. We're trying. And, <laughs> We're trying. Uh, as a listener and big fan, I really appreciate that. So I think that's a perfect segue into the episode that y'all have chosen to feature for this segment. Alyssa and Brendan, thank you so much for chatting with me for Anthropological Airways. I'm so glad we had a chance to have this conversation. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you, Anar. And just know we're fans of you too, honey. I don't want you to think that this is a one a one way thing. Like job bless. I'm honestly the Yo, Twitter. The, the Twitter, the narcissist, the piece that you did with um Chelsea, Chelsea. think about that twice a week. And it's not at all because of what I encounter in my life. I'm you know, me no, parenthetically, never. you know, never because what I encounter in my life. Um, so yeah, we're so honored and we're so thankful for this opportunity and just like to see you and to smile with you and to laugh with you today. So thank you. The interview portion of this episode was hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Anar Parikh, the associate editor of the podcast and American Anthropologist, and executive producer of Anthropological Airwaves. The intro music you hear is Waiting by Croander. A closed caption version of this episode is available on the Anthropological Airwaves YouTube channel and a full transcription on the American Anthropologist website. Links to both are included in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Anthropological Airwaves wherever you listen to podcasts. Next month's crossover episode is also a great one. I'll be chatting with Sarah Dugnan from AnthroDish. Also, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen to Anthro Airwaves. A five-star review in particular will help other listeners find the show. We would also love to hear from you in general. If you have feedback, recommendations, or your thoughts on recent episodes, send an email to amanthpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on our Facebook page, Anthropological Airwaves, or on Twitter with the handle at Anthro Airwaves. Find links to all of our contact information in the show notes and on the Anthropological Airwaves section of the American Anthropologist website. Now, without further delay, stay tuned to hear Semester 2, Episode 13 of Zora's Daughters, The Climate is Anti-Blackness. Hey Google, what's the weather? Today, like every day in America, the weather is anti-black.
Hey y'all, welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we discuss popular culture with a Black feminist anthropological lens. I'm Brendan, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. And apparently, if I were an academic press, I'd be verso book, going straight for the jugular and speaking in manifestos. But I can't say that I read any lies there. No lies detected. Hey everyone, <laughs> I'm Alyssa, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Apparently, if I were an academic press, I'd be Duke University Press because I'm up on the latest drama, I have swag, aesthetics, and a propensity for pleasure. That makes sense to me, especially since I'm embarrassed by how many books I have from Duke. I mean, you can pretty Mm -hmm. much just blame their 50% off sales. In any case, we are back to business as usual. It's just the two of us today talking atmospheric anti-blackness, living and dying in the wake and a genealogy of natural disasters, starting with the volcanic eruption that killed 30,000 in Martinique to the Texas deep freeze last week. So excited to dive in. But before we get started, we wanted to say a big thank you to all of our supporters. So thank you to my aunt, Lachelle. Thank you, Mayada, Tina, Bethany, Olivia, Alejandro, Ryan, and Natalie for your generous donations. We value all kinds of support, so donate, send us an encouraging email, wink, wink, and follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. Also, you can buy some ZD swag at our website, Zora'sDaughters.com. Well, can you believe it's March? Like, where Mm. is 2020 going? (laughs) I know it's 2021 (laughs) officially, but to me... It is still March 15th, 2020. <laughs> Yo, I, I honestly don't even know where it's going. And this is such a big month for you and also a big month for Zora's Daughters. Like you have your exams right around the corner. Mm-hmm. And I'm just so proud of the work you've been doing. I know you've been hitting them books. <laughs> like I was hitting them books last year, you know. Um, and I can't wait to celebrate when you've made it through this milestone. So if you're listening, be sure to send Alyssa some good vibes as she prepares, because I know I am. Thank you. That You sent me a tweet maybe a month or so ago with a picture from uh, a book that Angela Davis wrote, and she was talking about preparing for her qualifying exams in 1968, Mm -hmm. and it has just been haunting me. Like So apparently for weeks and weeks, she only studied. She became so embedded in them. They were so imbricated with her that she was having dreams about the ideas. And I'm like, okay, I'm not having dreams about my books, but I would kind of love to do that. Uh, You know, it's kind of what I imagined preparing for exams would be like, but I guess I'm not 24. I have responsibilities Mm -hmm. to people, to this project. And also in 2021, it's kind of hard to imagine going off the grid for two months like (laughs) when twitter and instagram are right there so right i would love to just be like completely stuck in my books but yeah you know what actually i did have a dream about about my readings but i can't remember the dream so (laughs) i won't count it i i'm so into dreams like i low-key be trying to interpret other people's dreams but when you do remember just let me know so i can be like ooh, let's see what that really means um my psychoanalysis, I guess, will pop out then. But hopefully when you remember, we can chat off air. And I want to remind our listeners too: big things coming up for Zora's Daughters this month that we will be having an event on March 13th. 
We are co-facilitating a workshop with the Black Archive superstar, Zakia Collier, at the Weeksville Heritage Society for their community event, Weeksville Weekend. And our workshop is called Honoring the Ancestors, Black Feminist Citational Practice. And we'll be inviting participants to think of citation beyond that good old MLA formatting you learned back in grade 10 or 10th grade, as the Americans say. <laughs> and asking them and inviting them to consider citation as a practice of building community and honoring the intellectual contributions of their elders and ancestors. Yeah, we're super excited. Zakia is one of my favorite people in the whole wide world. Um, so we're just so excited to do this workshop with her. And we look forward to seeing you all there if you're able to make it. It is on Saturday, March 13th from 1 to 4 p.m., but we'll be on at 3 p.m. Eastern District Time. And you can also register for this event at www.weeksvillesociety.org. And that being said, Alyssa, let's get into it. What's the word for today? All right. The word for today, I said it already, anti-blackness. Bom, bom, bom. Bom, bom, bom. So I feel like our listeners, if you've been listening for a while, you've definitely heard us use this term. I think people have started using it a lot more, particularly after last summer. But what's interesting to note is that there actually isn't a Wikipedia entry for anti-blackness. So there's one for anti-Semitism. And then there's a mm. category for anti-black racism, which is then categorized in the entry for racism in the United States under African-Americans. So it's pretty, mm. even anti-black racism is pretty, you know, deeply buried not that Wikipedia is the be-all and all of, of terminology, but I mean, that's going to be one of the first places that people go, right? So it seems like people only started hearing this term last year. And so I was trying to find an earlier use of the term. And so in a journal article from 1937, it was a review of the work of Aline Locke, James Porter. He wrote that, quote, if Negroes can write satirical articles against white prejudices and the crazy anti-Black social taboos, the Negro artist can just as easily draw and carve satirical pictures, end quote. Mm. So, I mean, it's a little out of context, but there is a use from 1937 of anti-Black. So, of course, the term has become more expansive over time as it's been used in particular contexts and theorized by various scholars. So that being said, I don't think we really have a simple definition. Right. So anti-blackness, for those of you who are well-versed in black studies, is something that, you know, Frank Wilderson Jr. talks about a lot, Fred Moten. Of course, the author that we'll be talking about today, author and scholar Christina Sharp, talks about anti-blackness, Sadia Hartman. There are lots of black people who write about anti-blackness, um, myself included, Alyssa included, Right. And then there are a lot of non-Black people who write about anti-Blackness as well in Black studies. And I'll be having some thoughts about that, but I think I'll save that for our Afro-pessimism episode <laughs> that we have coming up. Um, I also have some thoughts about that. <laughs> <laughs> we have thoughts about lots of things. But yes, it's not just a simple word that has a simple definition. I think we can simplify it here today, but as we'll get into it, especially with what we're reading there's just a multiplicity of understanding around it. Um, and it's a deeply complicated issue. But at the base of it all, right, we have this social structure that has the black at the bottom, 
for for very particular reasons, which we'll we'll get into it. We'll get into it. Yes. And I think if you remember from a previous episode, the black, whenever you hear us say that, we're talking about blackness as a subject position. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So don't just go around being like, there's a black, you know, there's the, the blacks, you know, the black thing don't coming that. back. <laughs> That's not cool. Um, but I think in the same vein as the term massage noir, which in our first episode I said was important to use because it speaks to a specific experience, mm. you know, anti-blackness is more descriptive than, than racism in the same way that massage noir is more descriptive and encompassing of a particular idea than saying sexism against black women. So last summer there was a really great essay in the New York Times written by professor of African American studies at Northwestern University, Dr. Kiana Mariah Ross, who like bell hooks only uses lowercase letters for her name. And I wonder if it has to do with um, what our colleague Chloe says, you know, uh, why she doesn't capitalize black because it literally has the word capital in it. Hmm, I mean, it might be. That's some deep shit. I think some people don't capitalize because of convention. So it's kind of like, I don't want to do things that are conventional mm. because convention in and of itself is rooted in white supremacist, patriarchal stuff. But yeah, I don't know. There's lots of reasons why. I don't know. I like that. I, I think <laughs> about it a lot, actually. So I appreciate her for sharing that um, mm. with us. So Dr. Ross, she wrote, the word racism is everywhere. It's used to explain all the things that cause African-Americans suffering and death. Inadequate access to healthcare, food, housing and jobs, or a police bullet, baton, or knee. But racism fails to fully capture what black people in this country are facing. The right term is anti-blackness. Anti-blackness is more than just racism against black people. That oversimplifies and defangs it. It's a theoretical framework that illuminates society's inability to recognize our humanity, the disdain, disregard, and disgust for our existence, end quote. So anti-blackness is not just one event or one individual. It is fundamental to the structure of modern society. Rationality was built on it. Democracy was built built on it. Capitalism was built on it. Everything we think of as the virtues of the modern world was built on the denial of humanity to black people. You might need to underscore that. I don't know if you could, how do you do that auditorily, (laughs) but I'll just leave a really long pause or something. You know, a stomp church clap. That's what I got (laughs) in response to that. I think people are going to hear what you're saying though and say, well, you know, how can that be true? Didn't Rousseau or Descartes, I'm just throwing out all the names I know, you know, (laughs) John Locke, whoever the fuck, Renaissance and Enlightenment thinkers, like, aren't they responsible for these ideas? And to answer your question, I will kindly direct you to episode four, which is The World is Basura en Fuego where we talked about why Enlightenment philosophers denied Black people entry into the category of human. And just in case you were wondering, TLDR, it was slavery. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And Sylvia Winter, right, in her brilliant 82-page article unsettling the coloniality of being slash power slash truth slash freedom towards the human after capital M man, its overrepresentation and argument, She traces this back prior to the Enlightenment construction of man, prior to the Renaissance humanism, 
to explain how the exclusion of the black from the category of human actually predates the Middle Passage. Yes. So this is a deep article. I personally am still digesting it. But essentially, wow, I can't believe I'm even going to (laughs) try to start explaining (laughs) Sylvia Winter with essentially. (laughs) There's no essentially. There's no way to essentialize (laughs) Sylvia Winter. (laughs) But to, to, to make an attempt, you know, so folks can kind of get a bearing on what we're talking about. There's a particular type of human. That's the human that matters. It has, that person has rights. They are a person. They have personhood. And so Winter calls this the genre of man with a capital M. And so man is generally a white, propertied man. And this, this category has progressed over time. And so she traces the development of man and who is included in this category and who is excluded. So at the beginning of colonial conquest, this man was Christian. And to be excluded from this category, you had to refuse the word of God. And so not being included in the category of man during this period of time, it meant that your land could be expropriated. Now, conquistadors were like, okay, we can't do this because technically the word of God had never actually reached the Americas. So they were like, hmm, how can we take indigenous land legally under our conception of what is right and enter what Winter calls man one? the production of the rational, secular, political subject. Ooh, child. So you have to be committed to the state, to rationality, et cetera, who is excluded, the Indian and the Negro. And so this lasted until about the 18th century. And then in the 18th century, we see the emergence of man too. This is Sylvia's winter's term. Reason then becomes scientific, and we see the development of man as a bioeconomic subject. So one that is biologically and economically superior. And that's where we are now. Yeah, that really, that makes a lot of sense, right? Like, and I think this really hammers home what we're saying about racism and what we said in our last episode about racism not really being able to fully capture the experience of Black people mm-hmm. and anti-Blackness being much more appropriate, right? When we start thinking about anti-Blackness as a structural framework, it makes a lot more sense. And so all of this to say, right, so... In order to capture the land that we occupy now, um, wherever we are in the world, and amass the capital then from that land that is being hoarded by very few, right? Philosophers basically finesse what it means to be human and who gets to be included into that category of human. They were like, oh. Ain't that some shit. Like, like, (laughs) it really is, though, because they're like, oh, wait, you, you know, by calling countries developing right but saying they're underdeveloped right these are actually resourceful lands right that be we then recast as unused right or like misproper misappropriated mm-hmm. lands. And so like anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity shifts how we even see places that are actually resourceful and we name them places that are deficient or less than yes and so anti-blackness is a term that when we use it, it encompasses an entire historical structure, as, as we've been saying. And Christina Sharp names anti-Blackness as a singularity. And so singularity is a physics term that is defined as a point or region of infinite mass density at which space and time are infinitely distorted by gravitational forces and which is held to be the final state of matter falling into a black hole. Now, y'all, I'm not a physicist, okay? <laughs> this is definitely me quoting Christina Har- Sharp, who is, like, quoting 
Merriam-Webster. But I want us to really sit there and sit with that reality, right? Anti-Blackness as a singularity. So not a single event or a single moment, as Alyssa was saying, but actually a moment, a point that we pass through that infinitely refracts the world in which we live, right? So until we do our Afro-pessimism episode, it might be helpful for you all to think about anti-Blackness as a force that refracts relations in an infinite amount of ways all at once. And we actually can never truly measure the depth of that impact. Yes, a black hole, which is also an apt metaphor, I think, you know, it, mm-hmm. it sucks up all of the light around it. So mm. nothing can exist or survive this, this black hole. Mm. So I think that's actually a really good transition into our next segment, what we're reading. So Brendan, what are we reading today? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Um, <laughs> we are reading In the Wake on Blackness and Being by Christina Sharp. Yes, I know you all are excited about this. So let me just introduce Dr. Sharp. <laughs> and uh, she's not here with us today, although we wish <laughs> we wish she was. We wish. <laughs> Maybe next time, right, fingers exactly. crossed. <laughs> But Christina Sharp is a professor in the Department of Humanities at York University. Whoop, whoop. That's where I got my master's. Hey, hey. She is a renowned scholar of English and Black studies whose research interests span Black diaspora literature and theory, Black diaspora visual cultures, Black feminist theory, and Black queer studies. Sharp has authored two books, Monstrous Intimacies, Making Post-Slavery Subjects, and In the Wake on Blackness and Being. For today's episode, we decided to read the final chapter of In the Wake entitled The Weather. And so we encourage you to read the whole book if and when you can. It's actually been really generative for my work and for Brennan's work. So we recommend it and then we can all conversate about it. Right. You know, hit us up. Um, We got lots to say, but we're going to try to package it neatly enough in this episode And in preparing, I was like, Alyssa, girl, where do we even begin? Because there's so much to say, but we also never really have enough time. Mm -hmm. Um, So really quick and totally incomplete gloss of the book. So please, Dr. Sharp, if you hear me, please forgive me for this very short summary. So Sharp in In the Wake on Blackness and Being is contending with Black life what she calls black being, right? That is characterized by anti-black violence and black death in the wake at, in the aftermath of the transatlantic slave trade. And so she artfully mobilizes the metaphor of the slave ship, the wake, the hold, and the weather to describe different aspects of wake work, which is defined as care work, where care is, quote, a problem for thinking of or for black non-being in the world. Mm. And so wake work can be found in sites of artistic production, resistance, consciousness, and possibility for living in diaspora. So this final chapter begins with the epigraph of the OED online definition of weather, but then Sharp gives us her own definition. She says, in my text, the weather is the totality of our environments. The weather is the total climate. And the climate is anti-Black. She writes, in the wake, the river, the weather, and the drowning are death, disaster, and possibility. Anti-Blackness is as pervasive as the air we breathe. And depending on where you live, 
your literal air, your literal water, your literal soil might actually be anti-black. Mm -hmm. So Sharp asks us to consider, quote, when the only certainty is the weather that produces a pervasive climate of anti-blackness, what must we know in order to move through these environments in which the push is always towards black death? In keeping with her metaphor of the ship, she says that we must seek a rudier, which she draws from Dion Brand's A Map to the Door of No Return. A rudier steers a ship, and Sharp reads rudier as a way-making tool and a refusal of nation, country, and citizenship. So rudiers respond to changes in the anti-black atmosphere and steer the ship. So one question we could ask ourselves is, what rudier are we using to steer? As Sharp says, what rudier internalized is necessary now to do what I am calling wake work as aspiration, that keeping breath in the black body. And so the keeping breath that she's talking about in the black body is a reference to Eric Garner, whose last words were, I can't breathe but also all the other black people from whom their breath was stolen. Yeah, that part of the book, I was like, ooh. Mm -hmm. I read this for my exams last year, and so it was a pleasure to come back to it again for this episode. Um, and one thing I really enjoy about reading Sharp's work is that she's always opening words so that we can see the different layers in them. So yes. Even the word aspiration, which I have a small background in pre-med before I saw the light and got the hell out. <laughs> so I, I understand to aspirate to be, you know, to literally give breath to the body. But then she also points to aspiration as a way to describe people's wishes to ascend socially. But then also, again, so we have that, right, to actually give breath to the body, mm -hmm. the ascending socially, but then also the literal act of keeping breath in the black body, which can be an act of resistance. So breathing, living, being in a world that wants to relegate our existence to nothing or literally to death is such an important act. And so she cites uh, the brutal beating of Rodney King and the murder of Eric Gardner, as you mentioned, Alyssa, during which both um, both victims remarked that they couldn't breathe due to the illegal use of the chokehold. And right. the other part that I thought was like, I was like, chef's, chef's kiss. <laughs> um, and I was about to say something inappropriate, but <laughs> chef's kiss. Um, when she cites Lundy Braun's book, um, Breathing Grace into the Machine, where the author talks about the anti-black origins of the spirometer. <sighs> and if you're if you're not yeah, familiar with the spirometer, it is actually the instrument that um, medical professionals use to measure your lung capacity. And in its early days of development, right, they, there was a study that was published in 1864 that said that black people had a lower lung capacity than white people. And so part of how they justified slavery was saying that because black people had this lower lung capacity, they needed to work their lungs more through hard work mm. and forced labor. And that was what allowed them to get their blood pumping. Mm. And so the argument was that like slavery kept the enslaved alive. Wow. Like that's a lot like that's anti-black logic, right? It, yeah. It's this weird gymnastics that you do, right? to justify um, subjugating people and killing them. 
So when I read that the first time, I was like, what? Like, what the actual fuck? Like, literally everything, right, is tainted in this anti-Black climate. Every aspect of modern medicine, gynecology, fucking study of the lung. I don't know what that's called, but that's tainted (laughs) by slavery, (laughs) right? So, but then she takes that, right, aspiration, which is something that could be in could be deeply anti-black and says if we take it up as a wake work right then we're putting breath back into the black body and we can resist these anti-black logics that say that the very thing that kills us right forced labor capitalism patriarchy homophobia transphobia fatphobia all that shit that kills us is the thing that saves us right which is how anti-black logic works but when we aspirate as wake work, we can resist that. It's just so, just her mind. Her mind. Mm-hmm. I love it. Her mind. It's literally, this is why you get paid the big bucks, right? Mm-hmm. I just, I <laughs> <laughs> so I think what I love about this text is that she's really showing us that theory is only useful insofar as it operates to liberate us, right? Mm, like you call, call yourself a Marxist, you can call yourself an Afro-pessimist, call yourself whatever, but the point is that you need to use whatever it is that's helpful for getting us free. And so she gives us a bunch of examples of wake work, namely black annotation and black redaction. And so as we study black being in the wake of enslavement and emancipation, we need new ways of writing, new ways of making sense of the world, making sense of ourselves. And so if you think about what redaction is, again, here she is unpacking these layers of words, right? Mm-hmm. Redaction is when you revise by removing words, phrases, etc. And on the other hand, you know, when the government releases records, they usually redact classified information. So Sharp here, she draws our attention to the fact that so much of black life and social and political work are redacted and invisibilized. They're, quote, subtended by plantation logics, detached optics, and brutal architectures, end quote. So... All right, what does this mean? Black life is made unknown to us through plantation logics that say multiple things all at once. So on the one hand, your value is only in your productivity. And then at the same time, that redacts black being as joy because there is no consumable product. Meanwhile, those who are closest to white supremacist power are most visible or overrepresented in winter's terms Mm. and may have more privileges. So I often think about this Instagram caption that the artist Deborah Cartwright wrote. She said that she wanted to create more images of black women relaxing. I think she used the term being lushes um, because we always carry the weight of the world on our shoulders and we deserve rest. And so she wanted to depict women at rest, black women at rest. I love that. Yeah, I I actually have three of her pieces. It's called the Lazy Sunday Trio. (laughs) Mm. Um, And people have probably seen them like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when I was on Zoom, because it was like three black women just lying in bed relaxing. Um, so people are probably like, why does she have naked women on her wall? That is why. No, don't worry about what I got on my wall. <laughs> worry about what's on yours or what's not on yours. Exactly. You know? That's really. <laughs> but yes, these detached op- optics are the ways of observing black being, especially violated black being without empathy because black people are considered non-human. So these brutal architectures 
are the ways the world has been molded to redact black and indigenous genocide and subjugation. The ways that literal buildings, streets, towns, cities, etc., function to erase black presence while needing us and the labor and sacrifice of our ancestors to exist. So mm. I feel like we might have talked about this before, but you think about while white women were climbing the corporate ladder, who was at home looking after their kids? Right. And what gets redacted, right, and the leaning in is the black Caribbean woman, if you're in the Northeast region of the United States, who's sitting at home with the kids, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, the other woman of color who's actually helping you do this work, be the, be the girl boss mm -hmm. that you are, right? So that's like a, a different form of redaction than, than what Sharp is like emphasizing right. for sure. Yeah. Well, I think she takes us deeper, right? Mm -hmm. She takes us deeper than that by thinking about instances of black redaction. So where we use our power to refuse to submit to these anti-black logics and optics. So what happens when we as black people choose what aspects of our lives, our politics, our knowledges are made known to the world through images? Right. Like, I think that she, something else that she also does is point us to the connection between imaging, which is, you know, the actual verb action of producing a representation of a thing so mm. that can be through an image or through a text or etc um, a movie right and then the act of imagining which is the mental image or concept that kind of precedes the imaging and so she's not interested in these imaginations that lead to imagings that draw black people into the realm of the capital h human or the capital m man to call back to Sylvia Winter. <laughs> um, but instead, she's really examining what images of Black suffering actually bring forth, right? And specifically how they call Black people back into the position of the slave. And she asks, like, what do these images call us, both as Black and non-Black people, right, to do, to think, and to feel? And then there's this move she does where she's like, okay, what is an ethical viewing and reading practice that we must employ today, like now in the face of black suffering and death? Mm -hmm. So what does black annotation and redaction offer us, right? It offers us a way to ethically view and read these images that are often presented. So in this chapter, she focuses on three examples of Black visual and textual annotation and redaction to illustrate how one can read or see otherwise. And for Sharp, it's very clear that Black annotations and redactions allow us to resist the force of the state through careful wake work. So put in another way, because I feel like I'm, I'm really hammering this down because I'm like, I love this so much. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so useful for thinking about my own work because I write a lot about violence against black women and girls. Um, and so thinking about ways that black annotations can allow us to resist, right? They can allow us to redact things, but they also call for us to look again, to look closer and to look carefully at things and not just take what we see as just truth, face value. And they also allow for Black people to determine the, the terms by which they are known and remembered and what through what Sharp calls a door unto Black life. So we, this is like giving us the power to open up our life or close our life to others. 
And in some ways, it allows us to protect the boundaries of blackness, as my dear friend um, Muriel would say. And one of the examples that Sharp writes about is Mike Brown's family asking for a second autopsy to determine the cause of his death. So his family's act of annotation, um, which is adding to a text, helps substantiate a counter narrative to what the police actually said, right? So we know the initial story was that awful person shot, um, shot Mike Brown because they thought that he was menacing and to attack them. But that second autopsy actually overturned that um, determination. And so this idea of black redaction annotation is especially useful in today's world as we constantly encounter images of black suffering. And I think that really leads us to our next section actually really well. Before we get there, though, I do want to be sure that we issue a content warning because we will be discussing different aspects of black suffering in the next segment. And we will talk about state station violence that has occurred in connection to natural disasters in Texas, Mississippi, Martinique, Haiti, um, and particularly around Hurricane Katrina. So please take care of yourself if you need to. But we're about to hop right in to like what 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 in the world what in the world I is going on <laughs> not know i do not know but i think i just i actually wanted to to say that you know i we've had other people control our representation for so mm. so long from from these you know travel narratives from the early colonial period from the minstrel shows that would mm. that would travel around the u.s to mm. lynching postcards that would you make know, the their pinnacles ways around. of black excellence exactly <laughs> <laughs> y'all that's a subtweet um <laughs> it's a subtweet i'm sorry i'm sorry i okay in no way am i saying that minstrel shows are black excellence as a callback to a very awful moment in my life <laughs> so Last week or two weeks ago, by the time this episode is released, Texas and parts of Mississippi and Louisiana recorded some of the coldest temperatures on record. The state ignored recommendations to winterize its power grid, which then sustained an epic failure last week and left more than mm. 4 million people without heat and electricity mm. as temperatures in some parts of the state plunged to single digits. Mm negative digits for those in Celsius. So for example, in Dallas, Fort Worth, the temperature reached minus 19 degrees Celsius or mm -hmm. minus 2.2 degrees Fahrenheit. And so as of today, an estimated 80 people died, including an 11 year old boy believed to have freeze to death in his bed. Mm -hmm. And people are estimating that much like the pandemic, we'll never know the true death toll. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually something to sit with as well yeah like what happens what does it mean when death can't be counted there are legacies of this right like mm -hmm. and it, our ancestors deaths you know cannot be counted and this is the legacy of capitalist white supremacist violence yes so people were without heat and water for several days due to rolling blackouts frozen pipes and just overall state incompetence We'll get right. to that. 
of course, like we want to be mindful that this is not a tragedy that's over, right? This is not a singular event and people are still going through it. Some people still do not have power mm-hmm. and recovery is going to be slow and painful as people discover really what the aftermath is going to be. People's homes are ruined. People's businesses are ruined in this like, and I want to underscore this preventable disaster. Yep. Um, so we want to take this moment to honor those who've lost their lives. Um, and we hold space for those who are recovering from the compounded trauma of state neglect and abandonment. And also want to underscore that state-sanctioned violence is not just police or military violence, right? It's actually reflected in this atmospheric anti-Blackness that's written into legislation, medical practices, and public policies. Yeah. And I, I really want to pick up what you said there, the the preventable disaster. And I think about events like the earthquake in Haiti, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. You know, people call them natural disasters, right? But I think that the disaster element is anything but natural. Mm. They're social. Because nine times out of 10, these mass casualties are the result of human decisions that have real and deadly consequences. So I think about the 1902 eruption of Mount Pele in Martinique. So it's it's now considered the third deadliest volcanic eruption in known history. Mm. And so indigenous people of the island, they called it Fire Mountain. They knew it was dangerous. They warned the early settlers of the risks. It was well known that it was dangerous. But of course they were like, we'll settle on this island. We won't listen to indigenous knowledge. Whatever, it'll be fine. So of course they build the most important city in the French Caribbean at, at the foot of this mountain. Of course. Yes, the foot of this volcano, I should say. So you know? at the time in 1902, it erupted in April. Scientists and the residents, they were like, okay, we're seeing signs of activity. There's some rumblings, but there's an election coming up. And the mayor <laughs> didn't want to evacuate the town. Oh my God, why does this feel so familiar? Oh. Exactly. <laughs> And so due to these political reasons, an estimated 30,000 people perished. So there was one confirmed survivor. And then there's another one that I've read about, but I haven't seen as commonly accepted as a survivor, um, a young girl. But I guess like mm. the, the sole survivor story is just too rich with myth <laughs> to, to, to mm. let it go and to accept, mm. accept something else. So, But anyways, I'm reminded that these are natural weather events, but the disaster is a result of state failure. If we think about Texas and what happened there, right? Texas privatized its electric grid in order to avoid federal regulation, which is literally what led to this particular disaster. Right. Right. And so much of what happened in Texas and in Mississippi, which is not really talked about as much, brought me back to Hurricane Katrina. And I was in middle school. I'm, I'm going to age myself. I was in middle school when Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast and devastated so many lives. And many people, many of the people who were able to leave, who were then named after right Katrina refugees, quote unquote, um, came to South Carolina. And I remember going to school with a girl who was a, quote, refugee. And she said her family was only going to be in backwards ass, and I'm really quoting her, backwards <laughs> ass South Carolina until things straightened out and she could return to New Orleans. But she was never able to return home. 
And so her family also didn't receive disaster relief funds until years later. And it was not, it was a fraction of how much it cost them to move and establish life somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Um, So our federal and state governments have failed people time and time again, have literally relegated them to death. And now, I don't know if you've been to New Orleans recently, but a lot of those like neighborhoods that were devastated are now kind of being, and I'm going to use the word annexed intentionally, but like are now being annexed by kind of like richer, wider areas Mm -hmm. and then are being like developed, quote unquote, um, or they're still in a state of disrepair. This is literally, literally Literally. the case. Literally love. The case. (laughs) the case for abolition like if this doesn't radicalize you i mean i can say this about pretty much anything (laughs) that's happened in the last 400 years but like Mm -hmm. you know if this doesn't radicalize you uh then i don't know what will but i mean i think it's a perfect example and there are perfect examples in this um you know within this situation that demonstrate why we don't actually need the state and so the state at the time, in the words of our wonderful intern, Mankute, bounced to Cancun. Period. Like said, bye. Was like, deuces. <laughs> and so meanwhile, Black folks, especially Black women, stepped up to help one another. Can someone just explain to me why citizens, and actually that's a very fraught term, but <laughs> yeah, why... <laughs> Why people residing in these states, in these cities, in these towns are better at redistributing essentials and providing aid than the state. Mm. And they're like, people, they always applaud charity. They're like, oh, Bill Gates donated a million dollars to such and such a cause. And I'm like, "Mm." first of all, Mm -hmm. that's a tax write-off for him and a drop in the bucket to his hoarded wealth. Mm -hmm. And second of all, the fact that charities exist are... A result of failures of the state and the social contract. So I've kind of like refined that idea now. I, that was something I said before, and I think it resonated with people, not on this podcast, but you know, I've refined that idea because it kind of assumes that the state is actually a useful structure around which to organize our lives. And it clearly isn't, right? Like it continues to fail to support life, and it was never built to support black life. So, you know. You know, you know, I would, I say the state not only never built to support black life, but imagine if, think about our ancestors, literally their backs are what hold up the state itself. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, not just that the state is not a container in which we can enter, but like the container actually sits on the back of our ancestors. Preach. So why not? Why not let it go? But don't throw me in the bucket with with those anarchists that are doing things that I don't appreciate. Yes, um, which is another podcast. Neither um, another time. <laughs> which is another another podcast. But I think one of the things I found interesting was actually the lack of images. I think we, you know we were talking about imaging mm. and images, and you know the way that the ways that images have been used to represent Black people, particularly Black suffering. And we said in another episode that these images actually don't produce sympathy or compassion. They actually just mm. affirm to white people that these structures and systems are doing what it is that they're supposed to do. And that's keep mm-hmm. white people in power and kill black people. Okay. Just a little callback to that. You know, 
But just I, in case you don't have time to rewind, you know? <laughs> but what I found really interesting was the lack of images of Texas, especially mm. when you compare to the gratuitous and pornographic images of Black Death mm. that spread in the wake of Katrina and the earthquake in Haiti. And so I'm not saying that I wanted to see those images. What I did want to see were reports of the Black trans organizations offering shelter, the Black mm. women cooking hot meals and delivering them to people's homes. I'm thinking of Dr. Badura Lagra, Dr. Shantayam Reese, like who were doing mm. that work. I, you know, props Salute. to them. Salute. And, you know, people sharing their homes with strangers in like uh, in a whole pandemic. It's no, I just it's wild to me. It's like all this shit is going down and we're literally in the middle of a Panera. <laughs> like like ma'am, this is a Panera. Like <laughs> why do people have to worry about freezing to death? Anyway. Yeah, I mean, exactly. We're in the middle of a pomplamoose. <laughs> <laughs> Our intern is sitting in and she's laughing. <laughs> she wants us to add a pandemonium. <laughs> So I think it speaks again to redaction, right? As Christina Sharp wrote, quote, so much of black intramural life and social and political work is redacted. So a lot of this was intramural. People were inside their homes, inside inside their cars. Um, but then a lot of it was also outside. Mm -hmm. These mutual aid systems and the way that people stepped up to help each other, enacting a black feminist practice of care you know, is not at all visible in the mainstream media. And so, in fact, like today, I was just like, okay, let me Google Texas deep freeze and see what happens. And the first news results that come up are of the wildlife that died during the low temperatures. I know you fucking lying. Nope. It was just like, all of these wildlife, they died, and now it's going to ruin the ecosystem. And I'm like, there's ah. another example of how white people care more about animals than <laughs> black people and people of color. <laughs> You can't make this shit up. Like, no, you literally can't. It's like, it's so consistent. It's it's almost boring. Like, it's almost <laughs> boring how consistent it is. But um, but I think, you know, what, what this does show is black people, and especially black women, they constructed their rootier, right? And we love mm -hmm. to see it. Period. And so what we are seeing in the news besides these, like, wildlife things is, you know, shit like Ted Cruz, the devil's ass pimple, walking around <laughs> congratulating people on their resilience. And I saw this really great tweet by, I'm totally going to mispronounce this, but it'll be in the transcript, um, Musher Cpex, uh, who wrote, hashtag Texas strong, hashtag Houston strong is white supremacy, actually. The ideology behind the resilience narrative in the face of state-sanctioned violence is just visual narrative patchwork to cover up the crimes of the rich and powerful. The way mm. Cruz deploys it here is proof of that. Mm. Yes, he was Texas strong in Cancun. <laughs> exactly. But you like, know what You know what people were talking about, though? That um, Texans weren't the only people he left behind. He also left his dog behind to freeze in the deep freeze. Oh, wait. Wow. Mm -hmm. that's who child I'm gonna I don't even know how to respond to that I don't even know how to respond to that um don't leave capital M man's best friend behind 
Um, <laughs> oh, I see um, what you did there. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> my little nerdy joke. I have to do one of those, I guess, a day. Um, but yeah, I think which is starting to talking about these images, right? I think the focus on imaging certain aspects of Black life um, allows for the narrative of Blackness as death. Blackness as suffering, Blackness as trauma to sustain itself. Um, and it actually allows non-Black people to believe that capitalist, capitalist violence benefits them. Yep. Don't get me wrong. When I say this, right, this is not a call for, quote, representation, or I think I would make it capital R representation, right, or uh, Black capitalism, but it's actually calling attention to the ways that seeing black proximity to death allows for others to imagine that they are not proximate. Mm-hmm. And I think this undergirds, as an aside, because I do have to throw this out there, um, this current moment of frustration about kind of black Asian solidarity, um, especially as more narratives of anti-Asian violence surface. Anti-Black logics say that death is the reality and the realm of the Black. So, but the gag is, right, that as we all know, that white supremacy, anti-Blackness, capitalism, and all of the ills kill all of us. Um, black people are just positioned closer to that death. Mm-hmm. Right. so I just want to say, again, as an aside to the aside, <laughs> why is this our problem, right, as Black people? Why is it our problem that anti-Asian violence is not ringing at the same register as a Black Lives Matter movement. Anti-Black sentiment runs rampant in non-Black communities. And we know this, right? And y'all are calling for solidarity without checking your own people first. So I saw this TikTok. Our intern, she sent us this great TikTok um, because this is the only way I have access to TikTok is through the youth. (laughs) I can't do it for myself. So (laughs) of, you know, Asian people calling for their own communities to actually ring the alarm, right? Versus turning to black folks and being like, why aren't y'all ringing the alarm for us? It's it's like, what's going on? But as a segue from that, like, I want to say, right, that if black people were to free ourselves, everyone else would be liberated. Right? This, so if the least, least of us, the most marginalized among us, receive the community care, love, and resources that they need to survive, then everyone else would have theirs. And it is only white supremacist capitalist logic that tells us that life is a zero-sum game and that that's not possible, right? It's that's literally what's possible when we are able to imagine more and imagine more deeply. So I want to push y'all on this, this call for solidarity. Like let's think about care and practices of care that actually reject, I'll say reject anti-black logics. And mm-hmm. I'll leave it there. I just want to say, bring the fight to the whites. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, I said this in that, in the just three podcast I was in, You're asking me what the biggest social justice challenge is. And I listened to other episodes and, you know, people had lots of really great things to say. And I was like, why are we pointing to the symptom when we can point to the disease? Mm -hmm. And the disease is white supremacy. Mm -hmm. The disease is white patriarchal violence. Period. Those are the challenges that we're facing. So as you said, Brendan, helping us will help you. Help us help you. Help us. But know that we're going to help ourselves. Yeah. 
and 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 like empower yourself to help yourselves as well. I would just say like I understand why radical movements can't move without black thought and black power because mm. we we are the wellspring from which radical thought comes. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's like I I can see that. But you can't take the thought and then step on the person who produced it, right? Like it yep. that just it doesn't it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Something that you said in that workshop we were in when you were like, I don't know how I feel about solidarity because I know that freeing myself will free others. I was like, yeah, that's it. That's the move right there. I think, and we can have a deeper conversation about this because I'm pretty sure people are going to be like, what? It doesn't mean I have, I'm like anti-solidarity or Mm -hmm. like anti-coalition or things like that. Like I am... Very much so I like take fully and deeply to heart that if we were to free the most marginalized of the most marginalized, just through that action, everyone else is going to get theirs too, right? That's what the Kambahi River Collective statement tells us. That's what a lot of black, radical black feminist theory tells us. And I think we as black people really have to start believing in the power of freeing ourselves mm-hmm. and like the power that we have to do that. And how, you know, Tim across the street might not be, I'm sorry, I, I know somebody named Tim, sorry, Tim, <laughs> uh, Tim across the street might not be with it, but when I'm free, Tim across the street is going to have a better life too, right? Um, so everybody might not be with it, yeah, but that's cool, like, that's okay. Just don't be with it over there and don't, like, actively harm me, I think is where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, but I think what's wild to me is the very clear class and race differences between how Mm -hmm. people weathered the storm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this black woman, she reported from her gentrifying Houston neighborhood that some of her white neighbors had generators on hand. First of all, who has a generator on hand? Okay. Or they were able to book hotel rooms. Meanwhile, her black and brown neighbors were almost still in the dark. Almost all of them were still sitting in the dark in the cold. And then I'm thinking about people who live in food deserts, who didn't have any means of transportation, people who are now facing electricity bills of up to $10,000. Don't pay it. Because of the demand for electricity. They jacked up the prices. I can't even believe that's, that's legal, first of all. Taking it, I mean, that's disaster capitalism. TM. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Literally TM. I don't want to say it's surprising because it's kind of not, but... I just want to point out that America is dead ass ready for war and fighting terrorism and putting Black Lives Matter on their like racial extremist groups mm. list because Black life mattering is an est- extreme idea. Mm-hmm. But like this country isn't ready for public health and infrastructure crises. Mm. They can't feed or house people or provide basic necessities of life. Actually, you know what? It's not that they can't, but that they choose not to for those who are not bioeconomic subjects. Mm. So the poor person, the houseless person, Mm. they're not bioeconomic subjects in the Mm. same way and thus are not deserving of the resources and basic necessities of life. I was going to say why, explain it to me like I'm five, but I actually think I answered my own question. So my friend... 
who is not one of, well, I mean, she is, I guess she is one of the youth compared to me, but she sent me a, a TikTok of this Uber driver, a delivery driver, who was upset that Uber pays them $2.50 per delivery. And then the person that they delivered to, the customer, tipped them $1.50. The driver was upset at the customer because they were gonna lose their apartment, you know, for the third time since the pandemic, they're gonna be houseless, you know, without all of this income. And they couldn't believe like that the customer couldn't just give them $5 because they're out there risking their life and things like that to deliver food. And my friend was just like, this just shows you how much people buy into individualism. Like how do you bypass being angry at the company for the low pay, this billion dollar company for the low pay how do you bypass being angry at the state for not providing the resources that we literally pay taxes for mm -hmm. to support you in this time of difficulty and end up upset at the customer? Oh, I feel like that's kind of the state of affairs, though, right? Even even as I, what was I was very scared about just to say that um, like the mutual aid groups were popping up and I was afraid that the state was going to look at those groups and be like, see, this is what happens mm -hmm. when we come together, when individuals come together and we work yep. together. So y'all don't need us to improve because, you know, the wealth is already here, which is, yes, very true. But also, I mean, the the corollary to that is we don't need you at all. So you don't need to exist. Bye, Felicia. Right, right. <laughs> Like, yes. So, so many different ways to open that up and also to say that like neoliberal logic, which we talked about neoliberalism in a previous episode, right? Neoliberal logic has really taken over and made state matters or even if you want to move outside the state, right? Community matters, um, individual responsibilities. And we saw on Twitter so many comments about Texas, Katrina, you know, what happened to Hurricane Katrina and what's going on in Mississippi looking like um, a third world country because of the quote unquote like looting or the empty stores and all of the destruction, which I just want to say pause. Okay. The reasons why resourceful countries look the way they do in certain parts of the world is because of European and U.S. imperialism and intervention that extracted their resources from them, okay? So what we're seeing in the U.S. as a parallel or a corollary to that, right, is capitalism and anti-blackness are those main cor corporates for what we're seeing, right, that devastation. So let's point, let's go back to where the fight really is, as you were saying earlier. Like, let's bring the fight, <laughs> I'm gonna start saying it to people. <laughs> Bring them, don't bring the fight to me I'm telling black men don't bring the fight to me bring the fight to the whites but that's again <laughs> that's another conversation <laughs> well <laughs> well the climate is anti-black we are here in the weather here there is disaster and possibility on paradise I Girl, I'm living. I'm living for that. Here, there is disaster and possibility. I love mm. it. I mean, it's what the second to last line of in the wake. So, mm -hmm. well, we'd love to go on more, but that is all we have for you today, folks. 
Thank you all so much for listening. This episode was produced by yours truly, Alyssa James, and my lovely co-host, Brendan Tynes. Our intern is Mankute Whaley. This season of the podcast is generously funded by the Racial Justice Mini-Grant Program through the Office of University Life and supported by the Institute for Religion, Culture, and Public Life and the Office of the Vice Provost for Faculty Advancement, as well as the Office for Academic Diversity and Inclusion and the Arts and Science Graduate Council. And of course, listeners like you. Zora's Daughters is also distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. We got a real official, quote unquote, <laughs> sign off. <I> know. <laughs> uh, we love hearing from you and we've really appreciated the conversations that we've been having with you all in our DMs and in our inboxes. So head on over to ZorasDaughters.com to find transcripts for the episodes, our bios, contact info, and ways to support the podcast. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at ZorasDaughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters and remember we must take care of ourselves and each other bye bye